0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. I want to read the text that Chris read, our Advent reading today. I want to read it a second time for a reason. I want to read it from the translation of the Bible that I grew up hearing and memorizing, as a young man, most of us grew up in churches that used the old King James, right? The one that sounds like Shakespeare and the one that for some reason most of us are sentimentally connected to. A lot of people are religiously connected to it. They believe it's the only holy translation of the Bible which um, is a conversation beyond the scope of this service. But I do love the, the old 17th century English brogue that comes through, the poetic sound of the King James, but the text that Chris read, our Advent reading from Luke 2, I love because I can hear Charlie Brown and our fifth and sixth grade pageants all wrapped up in it and see the kids with the, you know, the towels wrapped around, who the shepherds and the priests with the big funny things on their head, and it just uh, brings back a lot of sentiment for me, which is a big part of what Christmas is, so... From the King James, Luke 2, verses 8 through 14, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. And this is the line that I really like from the old King James. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I was reading this week from a little magazine that I get every two weeks is it every two weeks bi-weekly or bi-monthly? Bi-weekly? Uh, I think it's bi-monthly. I think there's a great argument, but again, that's beyond the scope of this service. <laughs> I get this magazine twice a month. It's called The Christian Century. It's a great, it's kind of like Christianity today, but it's a little magazine. Lee and Carol. I think y'all got this for me for Christmas last year. I love subscriptions. And this is a really good one. Well, the editor, who's a great editor, John Buchanan, uh, used that same scripture text this week. And in reference to the idea of peace, Buchanan said the words, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Those words strike deeply in our hearts, whether they are recited by a child, sung by a choir, or inscribed on a greeting card. Yet peace on earth and goodwill among humans is so remote. In fact, it sometimes seems, and I give an interjection here, in a world like ours, do we really have to comb too far down the headlines to remind ourselves this morning of all, of all that so shows the world lacking in peace? little girls, hundreds of them herded out of a school multiple times over now. Can you imagine here? Can you imagine here if Woodland Middle or Clovercroft Elementary or... We can't even wrap our minds around that. But these human beings, human families, hundreds of little girls herded out of a school and their parents... Bereft of any knowledge of where they are, not knowing if they'll ever see them again. In fact, Buchanan said, it sometimes seems that hoping for peace, expecting peace, and even praying for peace is a hopeless human project. Did you know that this year marks the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the First World War, 1914. Now we didn't engage that war, the United States did not engage until when, was it 17? I think it was 17. But the war itself began in in 14, and as the first mechanized war, its cost in human life, per the times, uh, the cost in human life was enormous and beyond horrifying. It was, if you remember, it was to be the war that would end all wars. And by the looks of things, it seemed to be just that. There could be no loss. There could be no horror. There could be no tragedy greater than what we experienced as a world in that war. Uh, The height of the tragedy, the height of the irony, is that the war to end all wars was not the war to end all wars. It was merely a prelude to a greater war, An even more lethal and horrifying war, um, a war that even since its end, our past century and even this century has seen followed by uninterrupted violence, uninterrupted suffering and tragedy again that ensues even to this day and in a world like ours. In a world with the capacity for war that this world has, and I'm not here to argue the idea of justness, righteousness, injustice, I'm not here to argue all of that. I'm simply here to acknowledge the fact that we are a world filled with strife, um, torn apart by differences, um, inequities, injustice, uh, and I think even raw evil, whatever the definition of that is. The question that came to me as I read the text this morning and thought about Charlie Brown and fourth grade children's heads wrapped in bath towels and angels on a hillside saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The question that came to me is, are we people of religious sentiment? Are we as people of religious sentiment, are we naive to keep talking about Are we naïve to keep hoping for, are we naïve even to keep praying for this thing we call peace? The end of war, the end of strife, pervasive beyond nations even into homes, pervasive beyond homes and macro systems even into individual hearts. This year is not only the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War, it's also the 100th anniversary of a story that most of you have heard repeated in many forms. A story that when I first heard it drove me to investigate. If there would have been Snopes, I would have gone immediately to Snopes because it's one of those stories that sounds too good to be true. It's one of those made-up legends of sort that we build that have accretions through the years and it just builds up into this wonderful lovely legend that makes a virtuous point the reality is upon investigation and it doesn't take a careful investigation to find out this story is not a legend Uh, this story is actually a reality it's the story of the Christmas truce of 1914 a truce that gave the world a glimpse A tiny glimpse of peace in a very horrific time. It was Christmas Eve of 1914, and there were two very large armies facing each other across a front. The front, as I remember it, was right on the French-Belgian border, and it extended literally for miles. Tens of thousands of soldiers rested in trenches opposing one another. The troops crouched in those trenches that were cut into soggy soil. Many troops actually lost their life from collapsing walls, even from drowning. Those trenches were often filling with water. They crouched in those trenches cut into the soggy soil with only candles and lanterns and flashlights to give them light, constantly struggling not just with the bullets and artillery and hand grenades that were flying around them but the walls that were collapsing on tops of literally dozens of them at a time. Between the trenches there on that French-Belgian border with the Brits on one side and Germans on the other. Between those trenches was a space of about 50, maybe a maximum of 100 yards. Just picture a football field. And that 50 to 100 yards of no man's land uh, was just that. If you ventured into it, you would immediately be cut down. There were snipers on both sides that were not only positioned to take out those who ventured into the no man's land, but they were also positioned to take out those who had peek their head ever so carefully, even above the margin of the trench. Hand grenades, which were all the rage in that war and were even then just being invented and refined along the way, hand grenades were being thrown, artillery shells were being lobbed, and occasionally there would be soldiers in the midst of the freezing conditions who would, perhaps even some said, would lose their mind. Maybe it was an act of valor, maybe it was an act of insanity, but they couldn't take it anymore, and they would charge, to use a World War II term from another army, they would charge in kamikaze style. They just could not stand it anymore, Mike, and they would charge out of the trench, guns ablazing, in an effort to take as many lives as they could on the other side, knowing their own life. It was a suicide mission of sorts. Seldom, Jerry, did they get much past five or ten yards out. Christmas was approaching as those two sides wielded their war wares against one another. And as Christmas approached, the story goes, and if you want more on this story, Stanley Weintraub, a great author, W-E-I-N-T-R-A-U-B, Stanley Weintraub, uh, wrote a book called Silent Night, the story of the World War I Christmas truce. And it's fascinating. It's not just that evening, but it's a brilliantly written book about all that that evening entailed, not just in terms of war and battle, but in terms of philosophy. Um, Even tremendous religious insight in the book. But as Christmas approached, Weintraub said, both troops began receiving packages from home. Both troops actually received formal packages from their government. The uh, The British troops received little brown paper sacks and they were filled with several things um, they, were, they were called Princess Mary packets. There were cigarettes in them. There was a greeting card from King George V. There were individual plum puddings and a few Cadbury chocolates sprinkled in the little packages. The Germans at the same time received packages, and in their packages were a tobacco and pipe, a profile of Crown Prince Frederick Wilhelm, and some sausages and beer. Interestingly, you've heard, if you've heard much of that story, you've heard that there were in the no man's land positioned Christmas trees with candles in them. Actually, those Christmas trees were not drawn up by the Brits. They were drawn up by the Germans because the German government sent bundles of Christmas trees to the front. In those trenches were many confused, bewildered, Catholic, Lutheran boys who had followed a government that had desperately lost its way. We all know now, in retrospect, a government and a people that even their descendants are ashamed of to this hour. On December 24th, a strange thing happened. The shooting began to slow down. Almost immediately on the 24th, the artillery fire It came to almost nothing. No hand grenades were launched. No suicide missions. And throughout the day, the shooting grinded until finally in the evening of December 24th, though no orders had been given, the shooting had completely died down. Both sides intuiting that this was a holy hour, that this was a holy day, both sides with religious sentiments that had deep roots in the Christian faith and in spite of the fact that no formal orders were given combatants simply stopped shooting at one another in the early evening the British troops said that they looked across the way there are hundreds of biographical sketches that corroborate this they looked out from their trenches and they were startled to see Christmas trees with lit candles on the parapets of the German trench in one spot a German voice along that long multi-line trench multi-mile trench one German voice called out a gift is coming now When the words were heard, the British actually dove for cover, expecting a hand grenade. What came across was a boot filled with sausages. The British troops, when they realized that this was not a ruse, they responded by sending a plum pudding and a greeting card from the king. As the evening ensued, songs began. At first they were patriotic songs. Both sides still standing in opposition to the other. Instead of bullets flying, now they begin to sing the songs of their country. Songs of patriotism, even military songs. They said several songs in, the other side actually would begin responding, not by singing another song back, but by clapping. From time to time, there would even be heads up on the other side. A standing ovation would would be given. But as the evening ensued, the patriotic and military and personal songs began to give way to religious songs. And then after a pause, breaking a very eerie silence, the Germans began to sing, still knocked, highly knocked. They sing it, one Brit said all four verses again. And then the British joined in all up and down the front singing the same, Silent Night, Holy Night. On Christmas Day, after singing the song through the night, the opposing troops ventured out to extend greetings. There were awkward handshakes and there were small gifts. In several places, soccer games were actually played and broke out in that no man's land field. It took a week for the shooting to begin again. Stephen Covey brilliantly said in Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Person, one of the habits is before you go to war with an enemy find the place where they weep, see them in their humanity and then decide if you want to make war with them. Well from my perspective even now as a descendant of the allies there was much to make war over then but that is not the point of this sermon this is a religious reflection after a week or so it took a week for shooting to resume and after shooting resumed from the time the first bullet was fired 6,000 people died each day for the next 46 months in the war to end all wars. 6,000 people a day for 46 months. That's a lot of loss for the world. Weintraub in his book plainly and I think poignantly says, the Christmas truce has lingered strikingly in the memory. It remains a potent symbol of stubborn humanity within all of us. A stubbornness that can yield not only to evil, but a stubbornness that longs for righteousness, yea, even God's peace. That story, as I said, would have driven me if Snopes would have been around when I first heard it, it would have driven me. It drove me to never retell it because I had heard it from so many sides and it sounded too good to be true. I didn't want to be the cliched preacher telling a story that actually is more, well, you know, Jesus told parables, so... I guess some preachers could tell parables, but I didn't want to tell a parable. And then Weintraub's book came, and I found out that it actually was a piece of history. The Christmas truce is almost too good to be true. And yet, this time of year, for those of us who still long for peace, even peace in our own soul, our own family, our, not just our own country and world, The Christmas truth reminds us, and it's too good to be trueness, that it really is no more unrealistic than an angel from heaven announcing that a newborn baby will be the savior of the world. And it really is no more unrealistic or naive than our faith that the birth of a baby could actually mean that peace is always possible and even always close at hand if we would but look for it. Peace is one of those things that may be easier to experience than it is to explain. By most accounts peace is the emotion, the state of mind that is ranked as most appealing by humans. In almost every research project that gives itself to this this idea of what is the ideal sentiment and state for a human being. almost Always, people say more than happiness, more than love, more than joy, and all of those good, peace is the state of being, the virtue, if you will, that people long for the most. Think about it. Think about the things that make us wander and wonder. Think about the things that make us drink and eat. Think about the things that drive us to... If not inebriate ourselves, at least anesthetize ourselves against those feelings that we so desperately want to press down. If it's not peace that we long for the most, it's the absence of that thing which is opposite of peace, that ill at ease down in our soul that makes us not only uncomfortable with others, but even uncomfortable with ourselves. Frederick Biechner famously said, It's not silence that we hate so much, it's what it says. Silence says so much in those still places when inside there are those voices that tell us that we're not good enough, tell us that we don't have enough, tell us that, oh, you know what they tell us. By most accounts, almost in every one of these polls or appeals or research projects, peace is the thing that people say they want the most. In its strictest sense, in its biblical sense, which is kind of my world of looking at things. Um, Peace, biblically, means wholeness. And I have to think about that for a minute, but that that makes sense to me. Peace is fullness. Peace is when you're not longing, you're not discontent. You feel whole. You feel, to use a biblical word, holy. Um, In the strictest sense, when you dig down into the Hebrew and the Greek from our two testaments, the the etymology, the derivation of the words, and you kind of trace the word back. In both cases, in our ancient languages, our ancient religious languages, peace traces back in the word. It traces back to words that mean at one with. Now think about that for a minute. Peace means to be at one with. And that's certainly true of the person who's sitting beside you, the kids that you're rearing in that home, the people you work with on your job, if, if you're marching in step with them, if you're at one with them, then there is this thing that we call peace. But I think in the biblical sense there was this kind of presupposition that what was meant by at one with was you are at one with yourself and God. You're in lockstep as my old countryman back in northeast Arkansas would say at many a funeral. He was, uh, he was at peace with God. She was at peace with God. Now, if you look to the dictionary, it can variously point to harmonious relationships between people, between nations. It can mean as slight a thing as friendliness or freedom from harm, uh, harmony between God and man. The last definition here, a sense of rest, contentment, tranquility, serenity, stillness, calm. Back to the biblical word, In Hebrew, it's shalom, still used frequently in the Middle East, pervasively. Shalom meant fullness, completeness. Having everything you need to be, I love this, having everything you need to be holy and happily yourself. Because I don't really think there's the possibility of being at peace with God unless you're at peace with yourself, because you don't even have a self to be at peace with God with. And I don't think there's a possibility of being at peace with yourself unless you're at peace with God, and you can do the chicken or the egg thing, or you can just settle into the gift that peace is, because I do believe it's a gift. On at least a half a dozen occasions, the apostle Paul refers to God as the God of peace, I I don't think the Apostle Paul ever referred to God as the God of joy. I'm not certain, and you can look this up yourself. I don't remember him ever referring to God as the God of love. Now, he certainly indicates that God is loving, but in in terms of a phrase, he never says the God of joy, the God of holiness, the God of justice, the God of um, love. Six times at least that I could find Paul says the God of peace. I love one of the closing lines that can be so looked over in the wake of a prolific letter the letter to the Roman church Romans 15 and 33 when he's coming down the home stretch of the book and he's kind of making niceties Paul says and now may God who gives us his peace be with you all amen And now may be may the God who gives us interesting and I don't know that I caught this before. I'm quite sure I didn't. He doesn't say, may the God who gives us peace be with you all. He says, now may, be, now may the God who gives us, did you hear it? His peace. Now there's something to that. The God who gives us the peace of God. You know, to the Philippians he said, now may the peace of God that passes all understanding rule in your heart. If you're not careful, you can miss, I think, the indication of that preposition. And prepositions are multifaceted, and they can go a lot of different ways. But I don't think I'm making too much of this to say that when Paul says, now may the peace of God, the peace of God, the peace that God has. Now may God's peace, Dwayne, God's peace. Not the peace that God has siloed as a gift for everybody, but no, 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 actually, may the peace that God feels inside God's own heart. May that kind of peace, not another, may that be the peace that rules in your heart. You remember the words of Jesus on that same wise to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. The Bible said that he took his disciples out to a place called Gethsemane to pray, and after the prayer, Jesus famously said, peace I leave with you. And then he paused, and that wasn't enough. Peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. And and the world can give peace. Life around you can give peace. and And it can even be mediated. It can be the mediating hand of God. But And if you right now have peace with the world and peace with all of your circumstances, wonderful. But here's what I want to say about the kind of peace you can have in this world. You may or may not have it. You may or may not have peace in your home. You may or may not have peace on your job. You may or may not have peace in the circumstances around you. You may, you may not. Jesus, understanding that, said, I want to give you a a peace that is sure. And that's what he meant by not as the world gives. There's nothing wrong with peaceful circumstances in the world, but he said, I'm going to give you peace, and it's not like the world gives. I'm going to give you my peace. And it's it's not the peace that's running down the road trying to loosen its load with seven women on its mind. (laughs) It's a different kind of peace. That can win Grammys, but... That's not the kind of piece and it's a fine piece. Nothing wrong with the Eagles. I love them, all except Hotel California, because you know what you hear if you backmas that? No. Back to youth camp, the Pentecostal church. My peace. Do you remember when he said that? He had just washed the feet of the disciples. And after washing their feet, one of them left to betray him, and he looked at the 11 remaining, and he pointed to Peter, James, and John, three fellows that he was immediately close to, and he said, would you guys go with me? And the three of them separated, and they went with Jesus out to a place called the Mount of Olives. And it was just a a molehill of a mountain, but it was a place where olive Trees grew, and they actually had olive presses to extract the oil from the olives. It was was an industrial plant, an agricultural industrial plant. And Jesus takes the three out there, and the Bible says that he came to a place, and there were some rocks there, and he set them down, and he looked at them, and he said, would you guys just watch for me? You don't have to do anything, but just keep watch so I can do what I need to do. And the Bible says a stone's throw, oh, woof. that old 46-year-old rotator cuff ain't what it used to be. But a stone's shot put away, about, I suppose about that wall, he walked and they watched him. And as they watched him, and you see him in your mind, his back to you now. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet away. And the Bible says they watched something that was amazing, daunting, horrifying, sad, inspiring, most of that in retrospect. But they watched him as he began to stumble. His body began to betray him under the load of what he was facing. And you've heard great people Reading again some of King's letters from Memphis when he knew he was coming down the home stretch of life. Jesus, even younger, 33 years old, knowing that it was about over for him. His knees buckled under the weight of that, and the Bible doesn't say that he came to Gethsemane, and he knelt in repose. and you know, the classic picture with the light shining down, Rembrandt's Jesus. No, the Bible says that as he got about a stone's throw from him, his body betrayed, his knees buckled, and he fell on his face. And as his face dug down into that sandy loam, saturated with the extract of Israel's olives, he began to cry and he began to sweat and he began to pray, and there they watched him on his face, turned to the side, lips pressed into the soil as he whispered through spiddling tears, if there be any way that I can get out of this, please. He prayed for an hour, the Bible says. Until finally, weak and forlorn, he came back that stone's throw and he found the three friends and they were sleeping. And it was proof positive that there are some journeys that you've got to take by yourself and even those closest to you can't go with you. And even if they could, the millions of pounds on your shoulders, they can't, with their best efforts, lift only a few ounces and there they slept. He rested them and said, would you please just watch for me? Back on his face. Three hours of that, the Bible says. It was so heartbreaking that heaven could not bear it. Heaven could not bear it, and an angel erupted over the side of heaven's balcony and descended, the story said, until the angel came down and scooped the Son of God up in his arms, And the Bible says that an angel of God began to comfort him there. The Bible says that he was in agony. And the angel couldn't fix it, but as it wrapped celestial arms around him, it whispered, there, there. And finally, his own heart broke and some kind of physiological breach. His heart broke, and the Bible says that He began to sweat, and he began to literally sweat as though it were great drops of blood. And he stood up from that place with the mud caked in his blood, sweat, and tears, and he whispered, nevertheless, not my will but thine. Now, it was that Jesus coming from that Gethsemane and that scenario, that came to his disciples, picked them up out of their slumber, and said to them peace I leave with you not as the world gives well of course it's not but my peace I give to you and I suppose it would have been appropriate or at least understandable at that moment if the disciples would have at least mused within themselves surely discretion would not have let them say it out loud though Simon Peter might have Surely they must have thought to himself, peace? That does not look like the kind of peace that I want. And yet Jesus said, this is the kind of peace I have to give. A peace that has to be beneath the surface for tsunamis and cyclones and typhoons and hurricanes embroil us. This is a piece that cannot be the eagle's version with hair flying in the air and the wind in your face. This is a kind of piece that has to go subterranean, down, down, down. This this is way past where the waves are rocking and and coming over the bow of the boat. This, this This is down deep where you Lash yourself to the mast, where you, where you lasso the sea monster, and you ride it down, 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 legions down, down to the base of the ocean, down to the depths of your soul, where the waters are still. John 16, verse 31 through 33, Jesus expounded a little bit more past the statement I made a moment ago. Jesus asked, in that place, do you finally believe? But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. That's what it looks like on the surface. But this is the kind of peace He's talking about, yet I am not alone. Yet, yet. This is what it looks like on the surface. Yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, yet though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. You may or may not have it in the world. You may or may not have it in this life, around you, at work, but I want you to have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world and I have made True peace truly possible. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, How are you? And I said, Peaceful. And they looked at me dubious and they said, Really? You don't seem peaceful. And I thought to myself, But I am. Not on the surface, but there is a deeper part of me. It was that which compelled Julian to say, all manner of things shall be well. I saw a little wall-mounted saying at a friend's cabin a few days ago. It said, spoiler alert, in spite of it all, everything really is going to be okay. You know why? because thou art with me. Peace, the kind of peace Jesus had is the kind of peace the disciples didn't understand. It was the kind of peace that allowed him in the bow of the boat to be asleep. I mean, the thing's about to go down. And they said, is it bad enough that the thing's about to go down and you're sleeping? It's the kind of peace that you sense when you peer over into a manger and you hear angels on a hillside saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Yes, and within weeks an infanticide broke out in Palestine that the biblical story said cost the lives of thousands of babies. And Jesus himself barely escaped as a picture of Moses down to Egypt. Peace. Within 30 years, he himself, just trying to do good, would lay his head in a bloody pool on the base of the Lorraine Hotel or on a hill called Golgotha or wherever else an innocent person dies for a cause of goodness and justice. There's an old story of a king and I'll close with this. An old story of a king, I used to tell it as a young preacher, I haven't told this I think in 30 years. But the story is of an old king who offered a prize to the artist who would paint the best picture of peace. That was the message, paint a portrait of peace. Many artists tried and after looking at hundreds, literally hundreds of pictures, the king decided there were two that he liked the best. One picture of peace painted by a fantastic artist was a picture of a calm lake surrounded by verdant, towering mountains capped with snow. Overhead was a blue sky with fluffy white clouds and the lake's calm waters, Banff-like, captured the surroundings as a mirror. The other picture by the other artist had mountains as well, but these mountains were rugged and bare and above these barren mountains was an angry sky from which rain fell and in which lightning flashed and thunder crashed. Down the side of that bare mountain tumbled a foaming, powerful, violent waterfall. On the surface, the latter picture did not look peaceful at all, but when the king inspected closely, he saw tucked into the color of the beautiful painting, he saw behind the raging waterfall a tiny little sprig of green. It was actually a bush growing out of a crack in the steep rock wall. And when he inspected even closer, in that bush behind the raging waterfall on the side of that rugged mountain underneath that that horrific sky, there in the bush was a mother bird who had built her nest. And there in the midst of the torrent of raging water sat the mother bird with her chicks in perfect peace. And this became the king's choice because as the king explained, peace does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, no trouble, or no hard work. Peace means to be in the midst of these very things and still be calm in your heart. And so a few hundred years ago, as our folks who are going to serve the Lord's Supper, if you you guys would attend to the Lord's Supper for us and the singers would come. A few hundred years ago, and I don't know the tradition exactly, but I do know it was probably medieval, late medieval times. The church, which had variously referred to this thing that we're about to do as the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, Holy Communion, the church began referring to this as the passing of peace. Paul, I like that, the passing of peace. And I think it's appropriate today, Pastor Melissa chose for us to do this through passing because sometimes we come, we stand, and we do it by intention or intention. One thing we don't do around here is common cup. Y'all just are not spiritual enough to drink out of the same cup yet. You get really spiritual, you don't worry about communicable diseases, but we're not there yet. Last time I did common cup, I looked down at that cup and I thought, Lord, be my helper. It looked like an aquarium with floaties. But I love the fact that sometime we do this by passing the plates. And I know it seems insipid that we turn the cup of Jesus into a little plastic cup and how weak a little wafer can be. But, oh, brothers and sisters, that's not the point. Somewhere along the line, somebody said, you know what we just did? We just passed to one another the peace of God. I like that. And it bears no need for explanation. So as our brothers and sisters hand you the plates, normally they say the body of Christ broken for you, it's a very formal but real, the blood of Jesus shed for you. Today, I would encourage them and I would encourage you. As you pass the plates to one another, just somehow, some way, even if it's the giving of love through the eyes, verbally, if you feel comfortable, just whisper somewhere in the process, Jerry. Just look at Liz and just tell her the peace of God for you. Peace. Father, we open our hearts on this Sunday before Christmas to the God of all peace the God of all comfort, the God of all love. Of all the ways that you could have chosen to come into this world to save us, to heal us, to redeem us, the fact that you came as a human being and not just a human, but to the working class and and not even as a fully grown man, the fact that you chose to come as a baby. The fact that you came into this world as a human being who couldn't even talk but with that first bleating cry of a baby you were calling out to this hurting world truth your little soiled first diaper was an almost white flag that ran up the flagpole saying can you believe me I mean you no harm. And in this season of Christmas, we remember that you are born again and again and again into our hearts and into our world. In the midst of our grenades and artillery and weaponry, in the midst of our hacking and our attacking, sweet Christ, you are born innocently, gently, and peacefully. I pray that today... Down deep inside, every one of us would take into our hearts the peace of God that passes all understanding. Thank you for allowing us to pass peace to one another today. I pray that we receive it, even here, even now. In Christ's name, amen.